Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. I love the kids in the hall so much that it's actually a problem. It's like this impossible standard, the romantic flip side to my shitty negative attitude towards all other Canadian TV. Like, don't you people know what was accomplished here on the CBC? I mean, yes, Lorne Michaels produced it, but this was a thoroughly Canadian comedy show. Aren't you embarrassed to make these cheap, shabby imitations of American stuff when once we innovated and did something so fucking cool that nobody else had even dreamed of? As the years go by, my reverence for the kids in the hall is met with increasingly blank stares. Kids today, let me tell you, a lot of them don't even know who Darrell is. Marion, you look wonderful as always. Thank you, Daryl. Darrell. Sorry, Darrell. Darrell, yes. Or Gavin. This kid, well, she's a girl, really. She goes to my swimming pool and she has false teeth. I found them when I was diving for pucks. She's five and she has false teeth. And she can't eat meat. You know why? No teeth. No, she's a vegetarian. They've never heard of Sex Girl Patrol. Sex Girl Patrol. They're in 
They have never touched Paul Bellini, and they don't particularly want to. I announced that the kids in the hall were having a competition to pick a lucky viewer to be the winner of the Touch Paul Bellini contest. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this competition, the point of it was is that we would fly our guy to wherever you lived in the United States so that you might touch Paul Bellini. I can feel those blank stares again. Trying to explain kids in the hall can be futile and annoying for everyone involved. It makes a person into the kind of pedantic film geek who is appalled that you've never seen Citizen Kane and demands that you sit down with him at once for a screening. And it gets really awkward quick because Citizen Kane is actually kind of boring, mostly because you have seen all of its ideas and shots and techniques a million times, which is because Citizen Kane is a work of absolute fucking genius and nobody had done any of that shit beforehand and everybody's just been ripping that movie off for the past 80 years. Same thing with the kids. You cannot really communicate how incredibly subversive and weird and original and revolutionary it was because people don't live in the world that the kids in the hall overturned. They now live in the world that it created. Absurd, subversive, and weird comedy is now the norm. It's everywhere. And a lot of it is really good. I mean, have you seen that Netflix show, I Think You Should Leave? Really funny. All of which has me kind of trepidatiously revisiting my Kids in the Hall reverence. I mean, does the stuff hold up? We can all agree that, you know, there'd be no rock and roll without Chuck Berry. There would be no hip-hop without KRS-One. But, like, when's the last time you actually sat down and listened to their stuff? I mean, I even love the Kids in the Hall movie brain candy, which the kids in the hall themselves openly regard as a disaster. But I haven't watched it in, like, decades. I guess the question is, how much of my love for these guys is just my own Gen X nostalgia? Are kids in the hall geniuses, national treasures, whom everybody must revere and recognize or are they just a comedy troupe that I liked when I was 12 that I should probably just shut up about already? I have had the rare and kind of bizarre privilege of working through these issues with the kids in the hall themselves. Mark McKinney and Scott Thompson have both been on this show. And today, my favorite kid, well, I don't know. I mean, in terms of sheer laughs, that would be Kevin. But, you know, Dave Foley was probably the best actor. I would not even know about queer comedy without Scott you know, you have to appreciate Mark. I mean, he's like the bass player in the band. But no, no, my favorite kid, because of his deadpan, because of the sheer number of amazing characters he created, and, and most of all, for his unapologetically bizarre and artsy films, well, it's Brucio. Bruce McCullough joins me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Alexander Way, Brendan Thompson, Annalise Weiler, Naomi Pleasier, Michael Galloway, Yolanda Meya, Kyle Gardner, and Graham. My name is Graham, and I'm an educator in Toronto. I support Canada Land because its journalism shines light into a lot of dark corners of our government and media that desperately need illumination. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community 
They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Welcome. Bonjour. This is an ambush. Yeah. You and I have a deeply intimate relationship that you are oblivious to. Okay. I'm making this weird. Let me try to explain myself. (laughs) Kids in the Hall debuted on television when I was 11 years old. Yep. And Brain Candy came out when I was 18 years old. So you have an outsized role in my development. Of course. We're your daddy and your mommy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult thing to explain to people. Some of the the people on our team who you just met, when I said, this is a big deal to me, that Bruce McCullough's coming in. They said, why? Why? And I had trouble answering that question. I don't mean to offend you. To the extent that they knew you at all. He's no Sean Cullen. I've heard it before. He's a guy from a comedy show. What, what is the big deal? And I've been struggling to, like, what is the big deal? I've had Scott here, and I've had Mark here, and we've had great chats, but right. I still have difficulty figuring out what, like, it really opened up something, or it, it formed a lens through which I saw the world. And I, I have noticed that there's a divide where people who kind of were part of that and understand that, and people who are just kind of baffled by that. Right. Maybe you being one of the people in the kids in the hall can help me work through this. Maybe you have some insight into this. Well, perhaps you had an alcoholic father. (laughs) You know, I think that we are or were still are people who kind of are weird little outsiders who said the world's okay and we're all going to be okay and we can make fun of ourselves and society's fucking wrong, but we're not exactly sure how. Mm-hmm. And I think as someone who didn't fit in, perhaps, I'm just guessing, I mean, you clearly run your empire here with an iron fist, but as someone at that age who didn't fit in, it might've been like, wow, these people have a different kind of brain yeah. than I do. That gets me part of the way there. It might be also surreality. Like I find my son is that age that you've described, which yeah. is like, he loves the tiny meat gang or whatever. And he's he's 12 now. But we connect on like the weird idea and there's something comforting in those weird ideas. Like I would tell him about 30 Helens agree 
and he would like laugh because it's you you're thinking something that you don't think someone else thought of or that's not something obvious about it and i find that that brings men especially together or people with weird searching brains yeah and the surreal aspect i think was something that you really brought into the well, I think we all, I mean, I mostly love it. I think we sort of shied away from it actually a little bit because we all loved Python so much and they were the great surrealists. Yeah. They were the Magritte of comedy. But yeah, it ages well too. <laughs> I found like a weird idea is evergreen. A lot of it ages well because you weren't doing like parodies of pop culture. Yeah, no, we didn't barely existed in pop culture. Things that don't age well is we do a scene about an answering machine and they don't exist yeah. anymore. <laughs> but like, it's not like we're, you know, going, damn you, Petrocan. You pitched 30 Helen's Agree to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. 30 Helen's Agree. You can't pay too much for a good pair of shoes. <laughs> Sensible shoes make sense. I spend a lot of time on my feet, and these make it a lot easier. My God, your feet are what you walk on. 30 Helens agree. You can't pay too much for a good pair of shoes. I couldn't see it working on Saturday Well, of course night. not. I went there, and that was part of the reason that I fell so in love with the kids in the hall, and I didn't realize how much I loved them, like a rom-com, until I ran to them at this 80-minute mark, realizing that I'd always loved them. I went to New York thinking that there'd be the great brains of our generation were there. And they were in a way. I met Madonna and Timothy Leary the first day there. But the people there had a different weird sense of humor that wasn't as weird as ours. These are like Harvard kids. A lot of Harvard kids and a lot of just kind of intellectual humor. We should do some stuff about the original first Thanksgiving and do things about muskets and stuff. And I just thought as a promo that 30 Helens agree that Saturday Night Live is pretty good. Yeah. Felt beautiful to me. <laughs> and I got lectured. <laughs> so that is like the holy grail if you are aspiring in comedy to be discovered by Lorne Michaels and to go to New York and to meet the biggest celebrity in the world and, and basically like this is the launch pad. Like the stakes just couldn't be higher. Like a lot of people flame out or you're the next huge superstar. Right. And it didn't go your way. Well, yeah, because it it's about being in a band. Like sometimes when you, you know all those super groups, none of them are very good. You know, when you get the bass player from ELO and the whatever, like we are an entity, a brainiac entity, the kids in the hall. And in fact, we're all often weaker when we're on our own. We're often less like ourselves when we're on our own. And I think we didn't understand or I didn't understand the intrinsic chemistry and kind of a circle of comedic love and respect that we had. And I think I just didn't fit in there. And I'm like, yeah. I can't help myself. Like I've directed studio movies or whatever, but I'm, I'm not really the guy who wants to please everybody. I kind of want to please myself and I, I can't help myself, you know? And I think that was part of it. I, I think I failed more than it failed me there. And I didn't fail because I had some fun and wrote some okay stuff. But out of that, I was more fortified that the kids in the hall should do a show, which is lucky that Lauren Michaels thought that too. Yeah, his his line on this ultimately was he realized that like he discovered this troupe that he loved, but then by splitting them up, it didn't work anymore and, and they're stronger together. Without question. And then continued to champion you once the band was back together. Yeah. I think maybe you also had to not only be together, but maybe something about the combination of you and Canada. I think so. I mean, he ultimately took us down to New York to toughen us up, which didn't work. Like, it was just sort of lonely and sad. I think there was something about, you know, the chemistry of, of me and Mark meeting in Calgary 
and battling the sort of the homophobia and whatever the brown shoes culture <laughs> I, I thought existed there and coming to, you know, the greatest city in the world, which is Toronto. And of course, I want to come here more because the vile tones were here. And I think ultimately there's something about Toronto that made us what we are. Yeah. I mean, later when Mark McKinney was doing Chicken Lady on Saturday Night Live, that didn't work either. Well, he, it, you know, as Lauren said about him at that time, it's like he didn't want to be in the pictures. When you're a young comedian, you're happy to be in the picture. I think he kind of wanted to keep doing sketch comedy, but I don't think his heart was really in it. Yeah. The Canada thing, I think, is a part of me figuring out. It wasn't just the surrealness. It wasn't just the absurd. And it wasn't just like, oh, here's some fellow outsiders. Like, when you think about different sketch comedy troops, there's some kind of theme like, to the extent that Chappelle's show was about race or Baroness von Sketches about women uh, in a way Owning that they, their bodies at a certain age and yeah. looking at the world. And like just, just, just like getting at it in a way that journalism can't, just sort of like character sketches and trying to understand something about like the way people speak to each other in light and what's funny about the way we present ourselves. Each troupe kind of has, you know, I think Python, everything that was silly underneath the kind of stiff upper lip of British. So what what is your thing? And I look at it and... You know, I was used to Silent like Silent Live is about, I think, skewering popular culture and parodying popular culture. And then there's this show that, like, I'm seeing in the little Super 8 films, whatever, like, places that I know. Right. And then these characters that I meet in the sketches are, like, you know, secretaries and businessmen and dads, bad drunk dads, cool dads with earrings. Right. And uh, yuppie dinner parties and pretentious record store clerks. Right. And I'm like, this is my world. I know each one of these people. I've met versions of these people, and no one has ever put their finger on it. They've always just sort of been some generic kind of right. thing that's sort of like American characters. But there was there is something specific about not just Canadians, but like white Canadians. Yes, um, like it, it was like the most thorough study <laughs> of of like white Canadian manners. Right, and all of the repression and like the secret desires and lust and anger underneath this kind of like very banal exterior. Correct, Amendo Potsy. Did I get it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as I look at, you know, great TV, even like Seinfeld, which is kind of silly, those are people processing their obsessions. We were processing our obsessions and our lives. And yes, Scott would come to work in his underwear. He'd wear his underwear on the subway and get mad that people were staring at him. Like there was something about the immediacy of coming to work and something you see on the street or your girlfriend pissed you off or you pissed off your girlfriend that we would write about, which was sort of just our common, it was just our world. And of course, you think it's kind of boring because it's your life or it's a version of your life or something you think of. Of course, Cancer Boy isn't my life, but it's like it's ideas you see as you walk through the world. And if you actually own your show, because no one at Saturday Night Live owns the show other than NBC and Lauren and whatever, like they're all trying to score and they're all trying to get things through the gate. Yeah. And we had our own show. Not many people have their own show. And not to plug my new show, but Tall Boys I'm working with, it goes like, there's 2,000 comedy sketches or uh, troops. Only three have their own shows. You can be picked to be on other people's shows, but to have your own show and to have it once when you're young and you're in the middle of your young man's spell, as they would call it as in the art world, is pretty amazing. There's something about that, too, the timing of it is because you're saying, OK, we're putting our own lives. We were reflecting. But you were so young and that show was so well observed. It wasn't just your own lives, like, like how you understood women so so well, how you kind of like even like the class mobility of it, like you, you could do 
a dinner party where somebody's just like murdering someone or the affair. And then you could do like you could you could do kind of like white trashy stuff. Yeah. Like, I you, went to bartending school everyone. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or where <laughs> you're trying to beat up the big guy. And yeah. they, like, you did a lot of characters. Yeah. Did you know what you were doing at the time? Like, No, not really. And I think, you know, and it's funny because I go, go through this with the tall boys who I'm working with. It's like they're thinking about what they're doing. And it's like sometimes you just have to paint and then step back and look at the canvas. Because if you're interested in something, it's maybe interesting. Yeah. You know, and I, in my own life, and I've had some success and some failure in terms of studio movies or whatever. Or when I've tried to write a movie that I thought everybody would love, it doesn't work out. And so... We never tried to figure out something that would succeed. We never thought of that. You know, I'm sure there was a, the third cabbage head maybe isn't as good as the first or whatever. But in a general way, it was only what was interesting to us. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine it was an, an intellectual exercise like, you know, wh what are some other white Canadian stereotypes for us to skewer? Like you just sort of like would channel these things and it kind of works or it doesn't. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons that we never broke up is we didn't talk about comedy. Right. We didn't go, well, comedy is a rule of threes. Like I remember once when I, my first writing gig was writing the Gemini Awards and Eugene Levy said, but yeah, but what's the button? I thought button. What the fuck's a button? And like so we didn't have we didn't have the intellectual <laughs> breakdown of comedy material. Yeah. Like Mike Myers famously does where he draws graphs of things and what people want and where they get them and stuff. We would just go, oh, you know, I've been asked to sort of teach sketch comedy writing. I don't know how to write sketch. Like, I've just written a million of them. <laughs> and so I think there's such an instinctive part of it that we followed and got lucky that we got to follow it. How many comedy podcasts have you appeared on uh, dissecting comedy and how it works at this point? Not many. There's an interest, I guess, in the autopsy now. Like, people want to get in, you know, conversations with Yeah, comedians. I mean, I think the part that's interesting to me is, like, that it's a different cultural entry point now. Like, when we started, it was Second City and the Frantics had a radio show that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And Second City was really corny because of the music and those dumb chairs. And we made it up. And now the culture has changed that... You can actually be in a band or you can be in a comedy troupe. And maybe being in a comedy troupe is easier and cooler than being in a band. That was never something that was offered to us. You know, we are like the weird people in Wilburn, Saskatchewan, trying to find a New Yorker. <laughs> that like, wow, what is that? And so I think that's the thing that has changed probably in the 25 years since we yeah. started. I have known a disproportionate number of punks from Edmonton. Right. What is it about... Edmonton. Have you been to Edmonton? I've been to Edmonton. <laughs> it's, it's Edmonton itself. It's the, you know, used muffler capital of the world. <laughs> Who wants a used muffler? You can get one in Edmonton. I think it's just a tough little town. Yeah. And it certainly, you know, Calgary as well has turned into a quite a great city. They were pretty kind of asshole kind of cowboy places when I was there which they've transformed themselves. But I think there's something sort of cold and, as you say, white and kind of turgid about Alberta. Yeah. And maybe you couldn't be like a little bit of a punk in Edmonton. Like in Toronto, you could kind of be like... Oh, you no, you couldn't, be... Be, you couldn't be a punk in Edmonton. You'd be beaten up by... Well, that's it. Is I knew yeah. like the punks I know from Edmonton were like, they were doing the uh, anti-fascist thing before it was yeah. a thing. Yeah. You know? Well, and if you were a punk in Edmonton, you had to be prepared to fight. I don't think if you were punk in Toronto, you didn't you didn't have to necessarily fight. You could if you wanted to. You know, you could always go to Gasworks and get your ass kicked. But, you know. <laughs> you might have trouble finding somebody to take yeah, you up on yeah. that. Let's talk about doing what you did in Canada and sort of 
what happened afterwards? Like, screw you, taxpayer. <laughs> wow, what a bad skit. <laughs> and in such poor taste, too. You know, we're going to get a lot of telephone calls and letters about this one. And why not? Because every Canadian has a right to complain about that sketch. Because every Canadian owns a piece of that sketch. You see, your tax dollars feed into the government, which in turn mandates the CBC, which in turn provides funding, both whole or in part, to shows such as ours. So, like a cupful of water poured into an ocean, the atomic particles of your tax dollars mix with the whole and wind up providing for the budget of the show, uh, for the budget of that sketch, and for this piece I'm doing now, which we call... Like, these are not things that you could have gotten on to the CBC before you guys or after. Right. It's unthinkable. Right. Was it just the power of Lauren Michaels? I think we just kept going. Like, and I think no one stopped us. And I think that there was a better cultural sense of satire then than there is now. Obviously, there's a, there's a seriousness on every joke. It's looked at from three angles, not just is it funny. And I think... Yeah, I think the the momentum of us going mm-hmm. kept us doing those sort of things. There was a real punk aspect to to the show. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't do Running Faggot now, but of course then it was beautiful because it was about a folk hero, right? Yeah. It was it was the guy who'd been beaten up, me, <laughs> in Calgary 12 times for being a fag, was making him a folk hero. I don't even know if you could have that conversation now. It's a different, as we say, climate. Yeah, no, there was, there was an undercurrent of like, is a fun, very funny show, it was silly at times. Sometimes it was even wholesome. Like, these are the days I know or the 30 Hollands Greek. Right. But there was anger. See, that was the thing, too, is is I think that why it resonated in those formative years with me is not just like, oh, I see a mirror that reflects right. my world. But it was a fuck you. It really was a way of looking at Toronto through, like, now I see you. You're exposed to me. And, and you know, I kind of think of, like, Kids in the Hall and 8-Ball, the comic right. book, were right. things that really – where, you know, it's sort of like, I guess some people could watch Kids in the Hall and say, I want to do that. I want to be a sketch comedian. But that, that wasn't the takeaway for me. Right. It, it, was, it was more just like, now I have like a framework. Well, that's it's, nice. Like, I, I didn't listen to Lou Reed and think I could do that. Yeah. I just thought, wow, that works for me. Yeah, it was like a band. I saw you guys. Uh, I was at a taping. And like, that was electric. Like, the Shadowy Men played. And it was so fucking loud. Oh, yeah. Yeah, guys, you should turn it down a bit. And then you all came out wearing suits and just, like, really... I know that some comics will have, like, somebody to come and just get the audience amped up, but you did it for yourselves. And then you taped, like, a classic episode. You were nowhere but there to see that happen. It was weird after you were done to see these benign, anodyne, inane CBC sitcoms where it was so safe and tepid. And my thinking is, like, how could the same broadcaster that did that now be doing this? Well, they give you a half hour. They don't make your show for you. So that's the thing. It's like, how do you get on the air? And, uh, you know, every show on the air is a miracle. We got on, we kept on, and are sort of loved and hated because it was actually our success in the States that kind of probably kept us going here. Maybe, I don't know if we would have done five years here yeah. if we hadn't sort of been doing well in the America. If the HBO version had in. Yeah. Kind of encapsulates so many things about Canada, too, that you needed that cosign and that momentum to keep going and probably to have power creatively. But the show is so Canadian at the same time. Yeah. And then Brain Candy, which is weird to me to read you saying, like, I don't know if you were referring to the experience of the movie, but you said something about how shitty Brain Candy was. And to read about the commercial failure and the critical failure, 
I was just a teenager who saw it and thought it was great. My thing about Brain Candy was it was really a product of, if you're having a bad time, I think it kind of shows in the footage in a way. There's been famously horrifying recording sessions that made great records or whatever. But we're not Sly and the Family Stone going down hard and coming up with a great record. I think we were having a tough time as a group. And it just wasn't so much fun. Our show was fun. And I think there's so much pressure on that. We rewrote that so many times. And I just remember looking at a call sheet that said, all calls add five and a half hours. Because it was just slow and hard. And it was a, it's sort of beautiful for its pain, I suppose. But it was really physically and mentally painful. I mean, I, I clocked that it was dark, but that felt like a natural progression. Like, I, I, would, I didn't want a movie-length Kids in the Hall episode. Well, I mean, that was what, that is the brilliance. It's why we called the book One Dumb Guy, or Paul did, which is we didn't even think what our movie should be. And everybody was going like they were waiting for Chicken Lady to show up and the head crusher to see his lair or whatever. And no, we just didn't. No, we're not really doing characters from our show except Cancer Boy. Hey, how's that? For, how's that for an idea, guys? <laughs> when I when I, my friend saw it before I did, I said, "How how is the movie?" And he goes, "One word, Cancer Boy." Hello. Hi, doctor. I'm Cancer Boy. And what would you like to say to the doctor? I'd like to thank you for your marvelous drug. Oh, are you on it, Cancer Boy? No, there is no hope for me. But my parents are on it, though. They were so very low, not just because of me but because my brother was born with his heart on the outside of his body. Is that a fact? Yeah. That's the thing that kind of went into that territory. Like, I can't believe they did that. Right. And I, Cancer Boy is so sweet. And I cared <laughs> about Cancer Boy so much. And so, like, the, there's, there's heart and soul behind it. Like, there's no, we never pick a target. There's never been, we've never picked one target in yeah. our entire careers. The target is us. The target is society. The target is poor people who are trying to get Wayne Gretzky to come see their kid because he's got cancer and he's in remission so maybe Wayne doesn't show up. Like, <laughs> that's that's the impulse for that. I heard you on Marin saying that that kind of killed everything because you, you, you fought like hell to keep Cancer Boy in the movie and you won the battle but lost the war because the studio gave up on the movie because of yeah. this Cancer Boy. Yeah, and I was, I was taught, I, I don't know if I taught myself or the streets of Calgary and Edmonton taught me, I was just taught to fight. Fight for my shit. Fight for my shit. Yeah. And it's interesting I'm working with a young comedy troupe now who are kind to each other, who don't fight with each other. They want to take care of the other person even more than themselves. And we didn't come from that. And I, I'm probably the pugilist of the kids in the hall, uh, most in the troupe. So uh, Scott's pretty crazy too. But it was like, you would just fight for your shit. You fight for your shit. And as a punk, you just fight for your shit. I had this thought like in those years where it was like just kind of this, this desert and, and it seemed like we weren't producing good comedy in this country. I'm like, this is so, to return to this the CBC question, like they keep making these sitcoms and I don't know that they've ever made a sitcom that I've liked, but they sure as hell have made a great sketch comedy show. And then Canada had SCTV and I know that there's sketch comedy going, like we do that well. Why don't we do the thing that we do well? And where, like these are in years where I wasn't sure what all the members of Kids in the Hall were doing. I'm like, why don't they get those guys and make right. them the executives of comedy at right. the CBC? Like, it's cheap to make. They should be scouring this country. Like, let's fix CBC comedy right, right. now. If CBC just had, the same way Netflix has like 10 new or 20 new comedy specials a year, if CBC was just platforming different sketch comedy troops, they would be, they would be doing their job of reflecting different people. I don't know, like it feels like that's the thing. And now that's what you're doing. 
Yeah. Well, I think they want to do that. I mean, executives just wait for things to come in through the door. And sometimes they want to do something. They have an impulse. Like we all know that right now there's never been more great sketch comedians and solo performers and weird stand-ups and queer stand-ups. And like there is a thousand great people in Toronto right now. And I think probably as an executive, you go like, I don't know, how do we organize this? And the reason I got to do the tall boys or the tall boys got to be on CBC is because I'm an organizing principal. I saw them. I thought they were super talented. They were soulful. They were smart. And I went to CBC and I said, I can do this. I can organize these guys. They're very green. They would only had 10 sketches at that point. Mm -hmm. I see their talent. I see the thing. I know the journey they're going to have to take. It's extreme heavy lifting to figure out a show for people. But you're right. There should be way more. There should be some at Bell. There should be some on every network. And you're right. It's easy to try. You're Lauren Michaelsing them. No, I'm, no, because I because I have to actually direct. So that means you have to show up at six in the morning. Well, in, in the way that Lauren got us a situation that we could flourish in, in that way, I would respectfully say I'm Lauren Michaels. Yeah, if your subject matter and and the truth that you brought was like reflecting this this world of repressed white Canadians, it seems like from the first two episodes that I've seen. Something about being young and something about what's changing in Canada, something about multiculturalism, for lack of a better term. Yeah, without question, multiculturalism. And yeah. they're, they're socially very serious about their place in the world and how the world is shifting. And I love this for me, to be an old white man, to be part of that, to be helping them have their space and their voice. And we connect just through, you know, soul and comedy and surrealism. They're surreal. I'm surreal. So there's, there's lots of ways to connect. We're around the corner from the Rivoli where you famously kind of just worked through it all and just had this rigorous work ethic of, of coming back week after week after week, sometimes playing to 10 to 15 people. Is that missing these days? Because I think everybody just wants to make a YouTube video immediately and have a show the next week. I don't think that's missing. I actually think, I think we've gone through a phase where everybody wanted to make little short videos to, I think, live performance is probably more important than it's been in many, many years. You know, I do the moth storytelling thing sometimes. 2,700 people in Portland listening to five people at a mic tell a story. And, you know, and if you go to the clubs, you go to UCB in LA or Comedy Bar here, wow, there's a lot of people working, doing five shows in three nights. So I think it's out there for sure. People don't expect to get a special. It isn't like, you know, all their friends writers got development deals. It's not that. I think they know they're plugging away for each other. You exist between these different worlds and you've sold pilot after pilot in Hollywood and, and directed uh, feature films. That comes with the frustrations and things not getting picked up. Canada seems to just have a big loving embrace for you and the other members where you can kind of come and do other kinds of weirder work here. Has it worked out? Yes and no. Like, I don't know that's true. I mean, it's hard. Like I say, every, every show that gets on the air is a miracle. There's not an unlimited amount of space for things. And I've developed things that don't end up on the air. I've done that in America and I've done that in Canada. You know, America, you can always find another buyer. If Fox isn't interested in you this year, you go to Netflix. Canada is mostly CBC now. Bell is always trying to do stuff, but tend to not do as much stuff. So it's still hard, but I'm I'm at a point in my life where it's really great to be back in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I think in the smallest way, I've been rewarded for that. You live here now. Yeah, but I've, I've only been here now for a year. Uh, I was in LA for 18 years. And returning, like, is it the market is less, like you're saying, there's just there's less options. It's a couple things. It's, you know, we sort of had said to my wife that we would always be back by the time my daughter was in high school, which was now. And I think it was actually culminated in my one man show, which I'm not plugging, the death of my good friend Gord Downey. And it was like, do what only you can do. Do the blues. Don't write a script that you get paid well for and then you can sit in your 
place in the hills for a while. Like just just work, just do stuff. And I think there was something about needing to get back to Toronto at whatever age, you know, I decided that it was important to get back. I feel like there's a tension in, in that sense of like place and wanting to be here and wanting to own it and develop it and also a sense of frustration about the limitations of it. Uh, is that still active for you or like you kind of don't have anything to be frustrated about? Like, Well, uh, everyone's frustrated. It's like someone said, what's it like to be a Canadian icon? I go, well, I could use a job, eh? Like, you know, it's all. Right. And it's the thing. It never, nothing ever ends. Nothing's ever different. Like trying to come up with a sketch when you're in your 50s is the same as when you're in your 20s or someone going like, no, I don't like that is always the same. So I'm a worker. All I do is work. I get mm-hmm. up. I have an idea. I push it around. Somebody likes it. Somebody doesn't. It's a tweet. It's a New Yorker story. It's nothing. Like all I do is work and that's the joy of it. And so I don't think so much about, and maybe I spent too much time in my 40s doing that, like going, ah, oh, how come Fox isn't doing this pilot? I thought they liked Molly Shannon. Now I just I just work. And then as I did in my 20s when I got my great success and out of that comes the reward. And what about the anger that kind of fueled it to begin with? Still angry. I mean, I'm, I'm a happy man. I'm, I've, I've luckily put together a much better family than the shitstorm I crawled out of. But there's so much to be done always. And like my connection with Gordowney, my connection with the blues, you got to keep doing it. That's why I don't want to retire. I just want to keep doing it. And whether I'm performing in Waterloo for 300 people or whatever, that's great. We're having the conversation. We're, I'm, I'm laying it down. Do you think what Laura Michaels thought about the five of you is still true? Are you better together? Without question. You know, I mean, the realities of life is we decided not to become UCB and start our own company. And they didn't take my two-page proposal that I'd made in the early 90s of how we could become our own community and our own entity in a larger way. Wait, wait, wait. What what do you mean? Well, I, you know, I just thought that we could be what UCB has become, like get a building, get a space, develop things for us, other people. That's a um, fucking great idea. Like it would be, you, there'd be classes. We do shows. We do stuff. Market teach class. You know, it, all we, kinds of stuff develops. We did, become an institution, basically. Yeah, we were t- we were taught though, and SCTV went through the same thing. We were taught that after your show is over, you're supposed to scatter and get some, get a role, get a thing. Yeah, cash in your chips. You, cash in your chips. That you're out of university now. You're going into the real world. And I think that we realize now, and SCTV kind of realized that now, and a lot of comedians even ones that are in Saturday Night Live realized that no we needed our home and that's what Lauren always says artists need homes and when you're on your own just you know talking to Michael Gruber your agent at William Morris it seems like you're doing something but that's not your home I think you should still do this uh, kids in the hall institution building school performance space. Okay, well, by the old uh, second city that they're going to tear down. Okay, let's, let's talk about it. That's what the next phase is, right? It's like growing up, it's like, there needs to be a fuck you period, but then when you start your own family and try to make it better than the one you came from, or I don't know, something about becoming the man. We're workers. I don't know if we can actually build the institution. Yeah. I think the thing we do with inside, whatever it is, and do it the best, and find our cracks, and find a show to get onto CBC, and find another one to get on you know, a Netflix or whatever, I think that's the way we do it instead of trying to be Netflix. All right. Well, I think we figured this out for you. Yeah, good. I don't know what I got, you know. Well, you, you, clear your this? anger and perhaps mm-hmm. sexual repression mm-hmm. drove you to enjoy the kids in the hall somewhat. That'll have to be enough. <laughs> it's always enough. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse. 
Hey, that's your Canada Light Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me about it, and I will read that email that you sent to me uh, when you send it to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Oppo is coming out every week as we lead up to the election, and it is just terrific. There are a lot of politics podcasts all of a sudden. We still make the best one. If you want to stay up to date and informed for this election and, and listen to an engaging podcast as your way of doing so, listen to Oppo. Go subscribe now. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Our senior producer is Kasia Mihailovich, and our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hey, we make a shit ton of podcasts and we just give them away for free and we're always reporting news stories and giving that away for free. And like, how do we do that? There's only one way that we're able to do that. It's because people support us on Patreon. Please be one of those people. Go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.